Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Under the Sea, where we dive deep, way below the surface. I'm super excited to introduce you to my dear friend, Eric Anthony, today. I met Eric about three, four years ago. I actually met him through my flag football league. We played against each other for a while, and he was one of those really obnoxious, loud players that if you weren't playing with him, you probably didn't like him. He's pretty good. I don't want to guess him up too much, but just a terrible attitude. He was kind of like Terrell Owens. But I started my own team, and I recruited him because I wanted the best, obviously, and we became really good friends. Hey, Eric. Greetings. Thank you so much for being on today's episode. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you here. I think it'll be good for you to shed some light on what it's like growing up as an adopted child. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people, including myself, are pretty uninformed on this topic. So I think it'll be a good opportunity for you to talk about it on what it was like growing up and the misconceptions. Um, You also face a lot of adversity growing up, and it's led you to working with troubled teens. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be good for us to talk about that later as well. All right, so before we dive in, do you want to give everyone a background on the different types of adoptions there are? Because there's so many unique different kinds. Absolutely. Um, So commonly we think of adoptions as one way where, you know, a family adopts a child from another family and so on and so forth. But there's actually broken down into two different ways. Three, if you want to be technical, there's open and closed. And then uh, when you're in open, there's also mediated uh, to run it down. So closed is typically what you think of an adoption where, you know, a family gives up the child for adoption. Another family adopts them. There's no contact at all whatsoever, right? Open and shut case. Then Now, when it's closed, do they have a background of, like, the family history? Can, can they reach out to other family members or, like, absolutely nobody in the family? Yeah, so uh, in a closed adoption, there's no uh, contact between anyone in the family and uh, formally, at least. And I mean, the adopted family. Yeah. I mean, typically down the road, you know, we hear about people retracing their steps and connecting. But formally speaking, there is no con- uh, contact whatsoever. Um, in an open adoption, it's a little bit different where contact is accepted and encouraged. So a lot of times when an ad- adoption occurs, you can typically see it within the same family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have friends who've been adopted by their grandparents, by their uncles, their aunts. Right. right? There's things like that. But then there's also open adoptions in my case where I was adopted from a whole different family, had no blood connection to my adoptive family. Okay. And then you said there was an adoption that was mediated. Yeah. Uh, So mediated, from what I understand, is kind of open adoption, but it's kind of negotiated as far as what contact looks like, um, how often it is, things like that. Uh, I guess an example I could give you is like uh, if there was an adoptive family who adopted a child, the mediation would be maybe they meet underneath supervision, underneath uh, social services, or it could be, you know, you can write letters informally and we can give the letters to the child. So it can be anywhere is very formal where there's, um, you know, government assistance involved and there's very informal where it's kind of like, okay, we'll do it ourselves. And you can write letters, you can send pictures, I'll send you pictures. So there's a connection, but it's not a direct connection. Okay, that makes sense. So, excuse me, what type of adoption did you grow up in? So I grew up in an open adoption. Um, the, just a, a quick story before we get into it. Just uh, I was adopted by uh, Renee and Daryl Anthony, and they adopted my older brother, Vince, from the same family. Um, so my adoption looked like a lot of contact, letters, pictures, phone calls, visits. 
uh, up until this day. And like I said, we'll get into it later. Uh, I still have contact with my family, my birth family. <clears throat> How old were you when you were put up for adoption? So I was born into adoption. Uh, it was already oh, okay. negotiated and uh, figured out by the time I was born. Um, Patty, my birth mother, uh, had a connection with my mom, Renee, um, prior with my brother, Vince. And she kind of let her know, hey, I'm pregnant with another child. Would you, you know, are you open to adopting another child? My mother was more than ecstatic about it. And oh, she ended up adopting okay. me. Gotcha. And you had mentioned to me previously that your mother kept your eldest brother, Kevin, but yeah. she placed you and your brother and your sister up for adoption, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how old were you when you kind of understood that you were, um, your parents were your adoptive parents and not your biological parents? Let me see. Um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when I started figuring that, things out, but I can tell you that, uh, Growing up, I was always told about me being an open adoption. I was told I was special. You know, it was really put to me in a very positive light. Not so like, oh, you come from trauma. So right. this is why you're going into adoption. It was kind of like, you're so special that, you know, your birth mom wanted to share you with everybody else. I want to share your brother Vince and your, brother, and your sister oh, Marissa. Okay. So, so it was like very early on, like as soon as you could kind of comprehend. Yeah. Cognitively speaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, like as soon as I can kind of understand what was going on, it, right. was, it was definitely pitched to me. But um, even as a baby, I, I've... You know, there's pictures of me and my birth mother holding me, uh, things like that. She was at my christening. She was at a lot of events in my life that was when I was little. Right. And was that confusing to you at all? Like kind of balancing that you have your adoptive parents, but you also have your biological mom who is there from time to time, right? Throughout yeah. like, the holidays. and It's like, you know, growing up. The way it was put to me is like, you know, double the family, double the presence, double the love. It was awesome, right? Right. So that's kind of how I interpreted it. It was kind of like, you know, I have two mothers who love me very much and care for me the same exact way. Mm -hmm. It's just that from which I was coming from was a very traumatic experience with Patty and uh, my birth father. So right. she, you know, my mom put it to me that Patty loved me enough that she did, she wanted better for me and for Vince right. and for Marissa. And so she understood that in order for us to have a better <clears throat> lifestyle, uh, open adoption was a... Uh, her option. Mm -hmm. I think typically when uh, you run into open and closed adoptions, there's pros and cons to both, right? Right. Uh, so with open adoptions, you know, the, the pro is obviously it's double family, double love. Like I said before, mm -hmm. there's that identity kind of, I guess you're solidifying yourself in your identity, like where you come from, mm -hmm. you know, your ancestors, your grandparents, your parents, your right. cousins, whoever. So you kind of figure out your culture and like, you know, where you kind of belong. Because a lot of times we're always trying to figure out like where we belong. Right. And as, I'm as, sure yeah. in a closed adoption, that can be very difficult. If Absolutely. you don't know your family background, you kind of are trying to put together the pieces yourself. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, if you think about you know, you're growing up in a household that wasn't initially created for you. You know, you're kind of being brought up by parents who sometimes don't look like you or don't have the same culture as you, right. typically speaking. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to find yourself when, you know, in your home, you're absolutely accepted for the most part and you assimilate to the culture that's in the home. But when you go outside and you see kids that look like you, mm -hmm. it might be a little bit different. You right. Know? So there's that there's that kind of issue I see right. possibly with uh, having a closed adoption. Right. And since you were adopted, since you were born... Um, it probably felt a little bit natural to you since that's what you knew. Like, um, what's your adoptive mother's name? Uh, Renee. Renee. Yeah. So, like, Renee, that's who you knew to be your mother and to take care of you every day. <clears throat> um, I have a girlfriend who wrote a really great article for the Huffington Post. Um, she's an ado international adoptee, and she kind of talks about 
the misconceptions of adoption and how a lot of people have this view that if you're adopted, you should be grateful. You're lucky somebody was willing to take you in. Mm -hmm. And she kind of felt growing up like she had to put this happy face on and show gratitude all the time. And it kind of even shaped her to be an overachiever in Mm -hmm. life. Um, So is there that side of the coin as well that, you know, people kind of, there's the stigma that like adopted children or people yeah. need to be grateful when you're kind of placed, like you said, you're taken into a new family, a new yeah. environment, a new culture, and you have Absolutely. to adapt. So it's actually probably a lot of feelings and emotions for the adopted child to yeah. process and go through. And <clears throat> Well, you know, to speak light on that, it's like, uh, you know, there's a misconception, there's a stigma that, you know, kids that are adopted should be grateful, right? Right. It's like, oh, you were taken from struggle, you're taken from trauma, you're taken from whatever, and you're in this home now, and we're providing for you, right? Right. And you should be grateful for that. But then, you know, I counter it with like, you know, well, what is it that you're providing? You know, does that meet meet the uh, child's needs? Yeah. So it's like, why should a child be grateful for something that they may not want? Right. Right. Like, you know, maybe the way love's put out in the home is in a way that you want to receive love, and you should be mm-hmm. grateful for something that you don't want. Is weird to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that um. That stigma really plays a lot into how parents that adopt kids like act towards those kids. Like, I think that plays their mind a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Not all the time, but I've seen and been a part of situations where right. there's that pressure, I guess. Right. It's more of a and pressure, it, and right? And it doesn't like, negate how they're feeling. It doesn't mean they might not feel mm-hmm. sadness that they did lose a part of their identity, that yeah. they don't know um, their biological family. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, growing up, there was times where I was like, I'm so glad that I'm adopted, right? I'm so glad I'm here. I feel so accepted. I feel so loved. And that was a consistent thing. And then there's times where, you know, my adopted family, we went through our trauma and our struggle. And I was like, well, I wonder what it would be like if I wasn't adopted, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder if this would still be my, my issue if I wasn't adopted. And there's been times where, you know, being a preteen, Mm-hmm. arguing with my mom like i wish you never adopted me and saying those stupid words and stuff like that right. but i mean you never really meant it but you knew that was like that it would hurt that was your ace in the hole right like right. your mom got you i'm like yeah i don't yeah i don't want to be adopted by you right <laughs> you, just, you walk off did you ever feel some type of way that your mom kept your eldest brother kevin i kind of talked about it a little bit before but mm-hmm. i'm just so curious about this because i feel like i personally would feel some type of way or maybe like resent my mom a little bit like Mm -hmm. you kept kevin but you put me up for adoption yeah i mean it's it's definitely going to be resentful right you know Mm -hmm. you you want to be with your mother and all that good stuff but i think uh in my scenario my case that my mom and my dad did such a good job of supporting me and Mm -hmm. giving me love and the things i needed like tailored for me Mm -hmm. that i never really felt that resentment and or like envy of your brother because you had a good thing going on with your adopted parents yeah i I won't say it was the envy there was i i can tell you there's definitely probably some underlying jealousy that you know when we're all together it's like oh that's my birth mother but you know here's my adopted mother Mm -hmm. but it it never was like i wish that was my mother instead of renee like i always wanted my adopted mother my doctor i'd be my parents hands down it never was like i wish it switched wholeheartedly like i mean when i was pissed of course right we all think stupid shit when we're mad mm-hmm. but i mean i was again like my mom and, and dad adopted me gave me so much that i never felt that resentment but <clears throat> i guess on the greater scheme of things that's a that could be a huge issue in open adoptions right you're just right. like 
like, oh, F you, because here's my older sibling still with you. You guys are doing your thing. Right. Why couldn't I come along for that ride, right? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes kids aren't as blessed as I was to be adopted into a family that functions, right? Mm-hmm. At least for the most part in the beginning where, you know, you don't feel accepted. So then that plays even more into, like, y'all are doing well. Why couldn't you bring me? Yeah. And that can lead back into issues totally. in the, the other family, like your adopted family, where you start resenting your adopted parents for that instead of your birth parent. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, those people are there, they're present all the time, and they're a constant reminder that at one point someone, you know, didn't want you to say, you Right, know? yeah, that's an interesting point. I wouldn't say that, you know, they really feel like they weren't wanted, but, like, you know, when you're so either confused or trying to figure out what's going on, like, your mind can kind of run with stuff. Right. So kids can really get into that mode where it's just like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard enough to process, but having your siblings still be with Mm -hmm. your biological parent can make you, you know, maybe question why you were put up, why she was willing to try and make it work with your sibling and not you and all all kinds of feelings. But it sounds like you didn't have that struggle since you had such great adoptive parents. Yeah. And, you know, and and credit goes to my my birth mother, Patty, too, because Patty and my my mom made it work so well that, you know, later in life, it wasn't like I didn't know the difference between the two, but the love received from them both felt the same. Mm-hmm. And everyone was so comfortable in their roles in this huge family. Because that's a, that's a bigger issue in open adoptions is figuring out roles, right? Cause oh, absolutely. if you give up your child for adoption and then it's open adoption and you're still having contact with this child and your situation gets better, mm-hmm. imagine how you feel, right? As the parent, you're like, well, shit, I, mean, I think I can handle this now, right? Like, let me take right. this back, right? Totally. And the funny part about that is... In my adoption, that kind of happened with my sister. My sister was born, you know, born into adoption in New Jersey. We all saw each other, all that good stuff. When I came to college, I uh, ended up moving in with my oldest brother, Kevin, who lived with my birth mother. Mm-hmm. And after the first year or two, uh, Marissa's birth, uh, adopted mother kind of called up Patty and was like, yo, I can't handle her. Can you Can you take her? Oh, wow. You know, and Patty, you know, out the... Patty, you know, is like a saint. She she helps anyone who needs help. Mm-hmm. She's a nurse by trade, so it's just her profession to be a helper. And she automatically said yes. And she took on, you know, a 16-year-old girl oh, who, wow. who's coming from a lot of issues just from her, adopt- her adopted family. So her adopted family wasn't as supportive or, you know, loving as my home was. So mm-hmm. there was – she definitely had some – bringing in some issues into – back into her original home, right? Like – Right. She was given for open adoption, raised for 16 years underneath this other lady, you know, who didn't do that great of a job. Mm-hmm. Instead of love, it was more like money. Like she, oh, she wow. they, they were very financially well off. Her ex or her, uh, her husband passed away and he owned like a bunch of blockbusters, you know, back in the day, blockbuster was popping. So when he passed, he left it to her. She sold it a lot of money. And I mean, those kids were just loaded. Anything they wanted, drum sets, whatever. Mm-hmm. But she was never around. Like, in the summer, she would just take off, go golfing, and be like... Oh, wow. Eight, like nine-year-olds. they year needed olds. more than just toys. Yeah, they needed like, love. Like, fucking Lord of the Flies, the, the book, right? Like, just kids raising kids and fighting each other in a home. That's nine, crazy. 19 years old. So, I mean, how do you even learn what love is, how to give love, how to receive love? What does yeah. it look like? Social skills, like, order in your home. So, she comes with all this mm-hmm. into a very structured home. Because, you know, me and Kevin aren't really living in the home with Patty, but it's, it's Patty, it's my grandmother, and it's her. Mm-hmm. And Marissa, like, you know, gets there, and she keeps going to her behaviors, you know, and then that stuff spirals, right? Yeah, it was probably hard for her to adapt to a completely new environment, Absolutely. new you're bringing, structure. You're bringing your issues into a completely different atmosphere. So did know? Patty whoop her in shape or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Patty, 
I, 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 you know, me and Patty have conversations about this and I always tell her like, you know, she did an amazing job mm-hmm. with the car she was given. Like she's never quit on any of us. Yeah. Patty will call me to this day. Hey, how you doing? How's your job? She'll call my brother. Like she's always at our big events. Yeah. And just with Marissa, like, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, how much is too much of trying? Right. Cause you don't want to enable somebody. Absolutely. Either. You don't want to enable her. And then, you know, and Marissa had her own ideas of what, um, what she wanted, mm-hmm. whether or not that line with Patty is, you know, that's their, their right. issues to handle. But I can just tell you that they didn't work out too well. They're hot and cold. Right. It's going well. And I think it stems from a lot of how Marissa received love it when she was right. Little. I mean, that's late to like kind of transition your whole life at 16 mm-hmm. to completely new yeah. structure and you know, everything. And the wheels are coming loose and you go to North Carolina and you'll go from New Jersey, North Carolina like right. that. And if she never had the kind of love that Absolutely. Patty gave you and suddenly Patty's trying to give her that same love, she yeah. might not know how to receive it. And-, and then on top of that, like from the Patty standpoint, you know, she's. She's doing this out of guilt because she feels bad that this happened to Marissa. Mm-hmm. She feels it's her fault because she gave her for adoption. All these things happened to Marissa, and this is why she's that. So she's consistently feeling shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, and not to get too deep into emotions, but shame and guilt are uh, renewable emotions, manuf- manufactured emotions, if you will, where we put them out, where you have natural emotions, right? Sadness, happiness, anger, that dissipates. Like, for example, um, you know, we've all had someone important in our life pass away, right? right? We're currently not grieving about it. Why? Because sadness is a natural emotion. Mm-hmm. However, uh, for example, if you were walking my dog in the street and the guy off the leash got hit by a car, right? You're going to feel sadness. You're going to feel shame and guilt, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the sadness will go away eventually. That's that's kind of that's how it works. It dissipates. It's a natural emotion. Your manufactured emotions renew themselves every time it reminds you. So every time you see a dog... Uh, a car, like anything yeah, that reminds you of the situation, it renews itself to 100%. Mm-hmm. So, right? So, you got to think, now you're putting this in an adoptive standpoint. Patty feels sadness, of course. She let her kids go. She feels guilt and shame because Marissa's coming to her the way she is. So, it's so tough for you to be able to give kids you know, the appropriate love, tough love, whatever it is, when you're consistently in shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. And I think that played a big part in that relationship where she's always trying to make up for something. And there's no consistent, like, okay, this is tough love. She'll come with tough love, but then that shame and guilt will renew itself and it kind of eases down a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it's kind of like Patty did as much as she could with the card she was dealt. Right. So I guess that's like a, that kind of spills into cons a little bit, just kind of how when kids can kind of come back and that's kind of, I don't want to call it the worst case scenario, but it definitely wasn't a great scenario that happened. Right. So did Patty ever feel like your mother was kind of crossing that boundary or ever get a little bit jealous that she was coming into the picture? You mean Renee? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, Renee. Did Honestly, um, I never... Because I feel like that's got to be hard. It's got to be. It's got to be. You know? Sharing the role as mom a little bit yeah, when it's like, she's you know, doing all the hard work. Like... Absolutely. And you come through with a gift and all of a sudden you're yeah. cool mom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it ever happened, i never seen it. Uh, Patty and my mom to this day are best friends. And that's why I was saying, like, you know, with the roles in a family are sometimes aren't defined. But in our family, it was like it was defined. It was very defined and everyone accepted the role. So there's two parts. Right. There's assigned roles and there's accepting of roles. Right. Mm -hmm. So everyone in my family understood what it was. 
mm-hmm. appreciate it. And we all looked at it as a very unique and special situation because not all open adoptions work out this well right. at all to the point where people come up yeah, to us I've and they're just like... Yeah, I've certainly never heard of an adoption working this smoothly and everybody yeah. gets along and you're a big, happy family. Yeah, you know, we all went on a cruise together three years ago, like things like that. You rarely see that. So that's yeah. why it's, I just sit down and I'm just like, I'm so blessed for being an open adoption that functions because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in this world who don't have that same blessing. Right. You mentioned to me how your adoptive father kind of faded out of your life a little bit. Yeah. Um, so growing up, um, my I, I mean, I was in a picture-perfect home as far as uh, my dad worked at a factory 24, like every single day he worked, never took a day off. My mom worked too. Do and come home in New Jersey in the 90s was like, yeah, we're balling. Right. Christmases were lit. Everything we wanted mm-hmm. was there. Cool. Whatever, right? Like yeah. it, was, it was that little picturesque family. Uh, my dad got into hard drugs uh, and for the better part of a decade. And uh, what that did was kind of put a lot of pressure on my mother, Renee, to raise me and Vince, right? Mm-hmm. So we ended up moving into my grandmother's home, maybe 20 minutes north of us. And we kind of ca- we kind of did the most part. Like we lived there for a while, kind of dealing with that struggle. So, yeah, that's kind of how my dad faded out. Um, later on, he came, he, come, he came back and we have a very strong relationship now. But, you know, it was, it was weird because in my birth family, my adoptive father also was affected by substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. And then I go into my adoptive family, which I was leaving that family to get again. into, and it kind of renews itself, right? So it's kind of right. like, as a kid, you're like, holy shit. Like, yeah, <laughs> and did that, that had to have affected you in some way to ha- not really have a stable male figure in your life, right? Yeah, I mean, when, when you lose that role, because mm-hmm. it was so strong in my life, my father is... One, is and will always be one of the best influences in my life. Mm-hmm. But at the time, when you know when things got kind of hectic, you know, I it was just ripped out of it ripped, ripped from me, right? I mean, yeah. I was sitting there, I had a strong father, strong mother, strong family. All of a sudden, I was like, "Yo, where's where's Pops right. at?" So you know, I kind of go on this. My mother did such a great job of putting me, and my brother, into sports all the time. I mean, I'm playing mm-hmm. like three basketball leagues at once, a soccer league, baseball, all this shit. And in these leagues, I'm finding my friends' parents. Uh, coaches, right. teachers. So you still found that support system. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, people in my father's family stepped up too and were there for us. So it was like, you know. But it doesn't take away the pain. I mean, when no. you have a dad who's been present in your life for so so many years of your life and you develop yeah. that bond and then suddenly they fall off the bandwagon and then they're not in the picture like that yeah. hurts and you, it, hurts so, it I mean, feels like a death almost mm-hmm. because it almost even worse because they're alive but they just don't have their shit together yeah you know it's and like, you're like wake up like you're you know so important absolutely. to me why can't you just mm-hmm. you know get it together yeah and it happens at such a you know pivotal time i like developing as like a young man like, you know i'm like in sixth grade mm-hmm. trying to get my shit together trying to get ready for middle school and high school and things like that i'm growing up right. questions about girl like all that stuff that you know your average sixth seventh grader goes through yeah that you want to talk to your dad about not your about, mom you know, and i'm having this conversation with my older brother vince who's 11 months older than me we're like yo do you know i don't know like shit we're and both, they, we're both google the same wasn't age, a thing back then like it is you can't ask shit? siri <laughs> no you know i have a cell phone to go ahead and let me know yeah, you know, what birds and bees were like. I didn't have a cell phone to tell me, you know, how to take a girl on a date or yeah, you know, fix my jump shot, which I've never done. But you know, it's it's like a to put it in like a metaphor. Finding these role models is like putting a bandaid on a scar. 
right? And right. Like, what does it really do? It right. just makes it look somewhat pretty for a little bit, but the scar is there no matter what. Yeah, you still feel it it's, in it's those moments. You're still reminded, yeah. I'm sure. With yeah, and then every time that you know you feel like let down by your mentor, it's like the band-aid's ripped off, and there's your scar again. It's just a re- constant reminder that yeah. somebody was snatched out of your life for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. Yeah, and that had to be hard because they're snatched out of your life again. Like that happened with your biological father, and then again with your adoptive father. Yeah. So, Eric, do you think everything you've been through has kind of motivated you and inspired you to want to work with troubled youth and kids in the right. juvenile detention center? Yeah. Um, you know, my mom is one of my biggest role models and uh, inspired inspires or motivators or encouragers. Um, and growing up, I've always thought like, you know, you know, I, I was always blessed to have somebody look up to mm-hmm. uh, a male role model that was stepped in. My dad wasn't present. And those guys I still talk to this day. And growing up, I always thought like, you know. I wonder what would happen for other kids if they had the people I had in my life. If they had a strong male role model that looked like me, that could understand me culturally mm-hmm. and help me shape my own identity and like under, and accepting me for who I was. It wasn't trying to change me and anything. Just like, you know, who just you are. Just like listen. You're right? good the way you are, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I was, again, I mean, I'm a lucky guy to have these kind of people. And so reflecting on that, you know, in college, I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to help somehow. I want to be a community person. So I got into criminal justice. And I was like, okay, I'm be a cop, you know, community police and all that cool shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got out and I was like, you know, I went to San Diego and I was like, uh, going to do border patrol. And by then I had a good relationship with my father. He calls me. He's like, do you really want to do that? I was like, hell no, I don't want to do that. He's like, <laughs> so go help somebody. So I started coaching football. Right. Mm-hmm. And coaching football in San Diego, I, I coached in maybe I coached in National City and Bonita, places that you see kids that probably need role models. Right. So I stepped into a very big role model uh I guess place where some of these kids were their their fathers weren't there, their mothers weren't there. I was picking kids up for games, getting them different things for their jerseys, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. You know, you're, these kids like look up to you. They're they're excited to see you. It's a great feeling. Like no yeah. one, nothing else in the world can give you that feeling mm-hmm. than a child excited to see you and like wants to learn from you or wants to be like you. Yeah. So I started working in nonprofit work um, maybe five years ago, uh, being like a mentor because I didn't have a clinical background. And I was doing really good at it. I was doing groups. Like, you know, I was really connecting with kids and their families. And I loved it. Like, I never had a bad day at work. You know, it was I, fulfilling, I'm It sure. was so fulfilling. I mean, you know, you wake up and you know you can make a difference in a family's life like mm-hmm. that. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, monumental miracles. But, like, just shifting some changing in their life. They eventually lead, lead to bigger changes, right? Right. And it was that kind of stuff that got me out of bed. I was like, yes, like... Let's, let's, That's let's. the kind of job I need. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, when I was doing nonprofit work, uh, one of my bosses was like, you should be a marriage family therapist. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just, all right, whatever. So by the grace of God, I don't know how I got in. Mm-hmm. I got into grad school for marriage family therapy, graduated not too long ago. And I just started working, like you said, in a detention center with kids that are incarcerated. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an experience that I wish everyone could have. Mm-hmm. To see how much we need to help our youth, right? There's some kids running around there that are just they, they don't they don't have a place to call home, they don't have an identity to cling to, they don't have anything, and so when you're like that, you know you're very vulnerable to connections. Mm-hmm. When I say that, it's like you know your hierarchy needs, where at the bottom of your uh, hierarchy needs like a pyramid, it's um, like your base needs food, water, you know, breathing things like that. Right, right above that is like you know shelter. Like, you know, make yourself feel safe. Mm-hmm. And then right above that is connections. 
friends, family, just belongingness to things. Yeah. So I think of, that's so important. Absolutely. And I'm just going to stop you there because I think there are parents that think like, hey, if I provide you with the basic necessities, food, a roof over your head, like you should excel and you still have the tools to be successful when you need so much more than that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you got to imagine the pyramid, the top of self-actualization where you kind of really figure out who you are in mm-hmm. this life and know your purpose and all that stuff. And rarely do many people get there. Right. Honestly, it doesn't matter how developed you are, how great you are. Like everyone mm-hmm. climbs up this ladder because I mean, right underneath that is self esteem. We all struggle with self esteem at times, right? Right. So when you look at the pyramid, you know, when you have the the physiological needs, mm-hmm. a lot of these kids don't have that. They don't have food. They don't have water. They don't know where their meals are coming from. You know, their clothing is tattered. You know, their sleep isn't good. You know, they just live in a very trauma ridden home. Yeah. If they are living in a home, and then above that, you know, you have your health and security. Right. You know, where it's like health, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you just, everything's going to make you feel safe. Yeah. And you right. mentioned to me that a lot of these kids don't feel like they have a purpose in life, Absolutely. right? So, I mean, when your bottom of your, you know, your pyramid of belongingness is kind of like not there, right. how do you build? Mm-hmm. How do you start getting to self-actualization where A, you don't have stable, basic necessities? So what happens is, you know, some of my kids will tell me like, I didn't want to be in a gang. The fact is my grandmother locked me out earlier and earlier and earlier in the day until I was outside at 12, can't get into my home, and here come the homies rolling up, and they'll give me what I need. They give mm-hmm. me food. They give me water. They give me shelter. They, you know, they they'll have their me. back. Yeah, they'll look, look out, out for me. Them. Back, you know, and, but the flip side is they, they want to return favor sometimes, right? Right. Um, I can't speak to all gangs or all situations, but I know this kid's situation was very specific like that, where... You know, they got him anything he wanted. They had him around people. He felt loved. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it flipped. Like, oh, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And then, yeah. you know. You, and then you can't get out. Yeah. And then, and the thing is, it, it, it sucks for these kids because they get, you know, locked up. And these guys that were looking out for them are gone. No one's putting money in their commissary. No one's visiting them. No one's giving them telephone calls. Dang. No one's writing letters. Do you think they realize at that point, like, that they made a mistake? Or do you think when they get out, they're going to run right back to the game? Well, they so. go back to what they know because it's safe. Right. A mm-hmm. lot of these kids live in this box. And this is something my mother has told me before I moved to San Diego is that we all live in a box. You know, it's a, and it, it speaks to, you know, your hierarchy of needs where in our box, we know what's going to happen. Like if I ask you tomorrow, what are you doing? Oh, I'm getting up. I'm going to work. I got a routine. Yeah, and I like routine. to stick exactly. to it. It's routine. <laughs> Routines make us feel safe. Make us feel comfortable. Yeah. Because we know what's coming. Like if you don't know what's coming, it's so much anxiety. Imagine, oh yeah, for sure. Right? I know. Like my week is planned out. And if I don't stick to it, oh, yeah, I'll have anxiety. It off, right? <laughs> yeah. So a lot of these kids, they don't want to live outside their box. So they're so scared what comes in next. Right. The way and their grow, box is like gangs and violence. Yeah, their their and, box is, you know, with the homies and things like that. And it's like for us as people to grow, yeah. we have to step outside our box and be vulnerable, right? right. Traveling to different countries. Yeah, you mentioned that some of them have never left their never city. Never left their state, let alone their city, let alone their hood. Mm-hmm. Outside of going to, you know, another hood or like, you know, getting locked up. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you got to help these kids grow their box and understand that they can step out of their box. However, with a strong attachment. So what do you do first? You build them a strong attachment. Whether first it's gonna be me because I'm your I'm your counselor, right? But they my goal, my goal is to work you. myself out a job, right? So I want to connect them with informal supports. What I mean by that is like parents, if they're involved, grandparents, uncles, nephews, nieces, whoever's in their life that wants them to succeed. It's my job to connect you there because when I leave, and I will, mm-hmm. I don't want you to be back in your same bullshit again. Right. I want you to get around people that want you to be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Not guys that want you to be around and be a pawn in their greater yeah. things, right? So the way you do it is you got to help them like 
figure out like who in their life is positive. Because they'll immediately go, oh, the homies, yo, they got my back. I'm like, okay. And, you know, we kind of dig into that a little bit. But we try to find somebody who's made a strong impact on you. And what do they like about it? Not that person, but, like, what did you feel from that that made you feel like it was a strong connection? Mm-hmm. And you want to duplicate that with other people in their life. And you kind of want to help them pick out positive people, mm-hmm. right? And a big issue I run into with these kids is uh, masculinity, gender roles. and that. They're so tough on, like, I'm a straight like manly man, I beat my, like, you know, your yeah. traditional, like stereotypical man. And my thing is like a lot of these kids, like, you know, for example, one kid has told me, I don't know how to cry and really meant it. And I've seen them try to cry and could not cry. So you've got to think when you're so tough into your, your generals and like, you know, being a man, you know, you're emotionless. Yeah. They're you're, not cold hearted. You're savage. Mm-hmm. You got to do what you got to do. You know, it's whatever. There's no room for emotions. There's no room. Because they don't want to get hurt. Exactly. Right? They don't want to do that. So when they start feeling this kind of attachment of emotions, like, oh, I care about you or you Mm -hmm. care about me, they self-sabotage. Because the greater scheme is like, you know... They'd rather hurt themselves, right? They they, they rather end it on their terms Mm -hmm. than invest into a relationship and be hurt again. Right. Right? It's not being hurt. It's being hurt again. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Anytime someone gets close to you, you just snap and you push them away. However it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Traditionally, you'll see like uh, people that are victims of uh, sexual assault, their hygiene will go really low. They'll start stinking a little bit or the dress will bad because it's literally they don't want people around them. Yeah. Defense right? mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. It's protective factors. Mm-hmm. So these guys are going through similar trauma in a different route. So their way of keeping people away is just acting out anger. So does that happen with you? Because I'm sure they start to build a bond with you yeah. and they look up to you and they probably haven't experienced that kind of bond with a male figure. And yeah. so once they start developing that bond with you, do they take you in? Do they open up to you? Or do after a while they start acting out and push you away? It's funny because we have teenagers mm-hmm. who developmentally are a little bit below acting like 35 year olds so they're perceiving what an adult looks like act as a 14 year old with like a 12 year old mind because when you're missing out on these emotions like your development just naturally doesn't grow as fast right right so when you get close with them you got to do it with kid gloves like you can't really like allow like emotions to be like the forefront of why this is building mm-hmm. you got to connect on sports you got to connect here or there yeah you got to connect where they feel safe Okay. And build that build that relationship with them. And they're going to test you all the time. And it's the small things that kind of help. Like, for example, the kids play cards a lot. And they'll ask you, hey, man, I need some cards. They ask you and then you say you're going to do something. They're expecting you to come through on that. Oh, wow. So you need to come through with what you're saying. Because yeah. like, for them, like, you know, all of them will say the only thing you have in this life is your word and your balls. They'll all say it. Mm-hmm. And it's very true. In their culture and their mind, that's all you got. Yeah. You know, where, you know, you, me, Kenny... Charmaine, whoever, we have room to understand emotions are there. Reciprocation comes by, you know, just sometimes things don't fall the way we want them to. We can kind of adapt and keep going. They can't really do that. So it's kind of like when you don't come through, cut off. It's done. It's done. Dang, you probably have to set some alarms on your phone. Your notepad is like Anytime I walk into a unit, I carry (laughs) cards with me, a notebook, whatever they ask for commonly, I just carry with me. I'm like, boop, there you go. And then after a while, they start to gain your trust, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they open up. And Yeah, and before before there's a break in trust, you need to sit down with them and, and help them understand that there's going to be that road. Yeah. We're not going to have a perfect relationship. Yeah. And the thing is, when you prepare them, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Because you're like, hey, man, we talked about there's this. There's no surprises. Exactly. I'm sure they don't like that. Absolutely not.
Eric, prior to the podcast, you were chit-chatting with me about bucket filling, and mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. So can you talk about that and explain to all the listeners what you were telling me? Yeah. So uh, bucket filling is a, is kind of a, a technique or intervention that you can use with kids or honestly with anybody just to kind of put into or conceptualize how we interact with each other because, you know, as humans, we're social beings. Um, so, Christina, like there's imagine you're a bucket of water, right? There's no other bucket like you. All the things that make up it you. sure isn't. Absolutely not. <laughs> All the things that make up you, you know, your Jets fandom or Titans fandom or mm. your Eric Decker love or, you know, hey. what you do for a living or Giselle <laughs> or Kenny. All those things that make up you are in this bucket. Okay. Right? And every day when you talk to people, interact with people, look at people, you are metaphorically pouring your bucket into their bucket. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's important that we recognize this because... If you're not being conscious about your bucket, you can really miss out on some things. For example, Christina, if you pour into people every single day, but you don't allow people to pour into you metaphorically, how what was your bucket? What would your bucket look like? Um, it would be empty. It's empty, right? So when you feel empty, there's like depression, there's sadness, there's anger, yeah. there's resentment, lost there's those, self-esteem, there's lost self-esteem, right? It's just like a, a loss in general, right? right. On the flip side. If you don't pour into people and people pour into you, what happens? Your bucket does what? It overflows. It overflows, right? Anxiety, overwhelmingness, just stress, things like that. So it's very important to to take out these buckets we have and pour into each other. Like, you know, us sitting here talking in this podcast right now, you're pouring into me, I'm pouring into you. You know, Kenny, like when I interact with him, pouring into each other. And that's what makes us special is that because we're taking a little bit of each other out throughout the day and that makes up our bucket. Right. And it's very important to like, kind of say, like, you know, how am I feeling my bucket today? How am I feeling other To have that balance. Absolutely. Because it keeps you in the mindset of, like, I need to interact with people in positive ways. Right. And then also, I need to have people, you know, interact with me. Mm-hmm. And then for the younger kids, and some of the kids I work with, it helps them kind of identify what it looks like in healthy relationships when people pour into you. Mm-hmm. What does a healthy pour look like? Is it love? Is it happiness? Do you feel comfortable? How do you feel physiologically too? Like, right. you, like you know, does your stomach get the butterflies? You know, things like that. Right. Physiological indicators that tell us it's a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, how do you know when you're pouring into somebody in a very open and caring way? What When you're pouring, what does it look like? Are you smiling? Are you hugging? Yeah. Are you being kind? Is it kind words? Right, and then we, you know, there's also negative pouring, but that's a whole other you know scenario. But it that's just for helps. another podcast. Another podcast. <laughs> it helps kids realize how to accept relationships and demanding healthy relationships, right. and recognizing when it's healthy and when it's not healthy. Right. It's really big. For and when you need to stop pouring into someone's absolutely, bucket. And, and, <laughs> or stop allowing someone to pour in your bucket. Yeah, I mean, it's like I tell my kids, everything you do in this life is a return on your investment. Right. You know. Awesome. So, Eric, before we wrap this up, is there anything you want to tell the listeners? Yeah. Uh, get involved. Uh, just find out how you can be impactful in your community for our, our youth. They need a lot of love, a lot of support, a lot of time. And it's nothing for you to give an hour of your time a week to change a life. You know, you can coach. You can volunteer Boys and Girls Club. Hell, right. you can go to, you know, kids' events and just kind of be there and support kids. Mm-hmm. You can go to Special Olympics to help kids that are affected by disabilities. There's so many things we can do here. And we have so much free time. You know, how many times we sit in our house for three hours thinking about what we're going to do? And Netflix and, and, and chill. And Netflix yeah. and chill. Like, you can take that one episode off mm-hmm. and go change somebody's life and come back to the same shit. No, that is so true. You know? Everybody, be kind and go get involved. And if you want to learn more about it, um, you could send 
and Eric an email. So Eric, tell everybody what's your email. Address. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with me about anything mental health related, or if you want to talk to me about my adoption story, I'm more than happy to open book and give you more details. My uh, email is anthonye06 at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah.